when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Welcome to FT Politics, the Financial Times' weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster. I'm Sebastian Payne. In this week's episode, we'll be discussing the government's ongoing convulsions over the customs union, plus what to expect in next week's local elections. I'm delighted to be joined by James Blitz, the FT's Whitehall editor, Chief Political Correspondent Jim Picard, Political Correspondent Laura Hughes, plus Henry Newman from the Open Europe Think Tank. Thank you all for joining. And if you like this episode of FT Politics, don't forget to subscribe through the usual channels to receive it automatically every Saturday morning. The UK will be leaving the EU single market and the customs union. That's what Theresa May said a year and a half ago when outlining her vision for Brexit. It was also in the Conservatives' general election manifesto. And yet it's still a topic of contention, given the government does not seem to have a solution to maintaining a soft border in Ireland. It's not helped that there's no vote in the House of Commons for leaving the customs union. So is there now a real chance that Brexit is going to be softened and Britain has a or the customs union with the EU? James Blitz, let's just begin with a kind of view on what's happened this week, that Theresa May has sort of equivocated on the customs union issue, especially since she lost her majority in last year's general election. Do you think the UK is going to maintain some kind of customs union, a customs partnership, whatever you want to call it, with the EU? There's a lot of semantics here that really do confuse the issue. Yes, there are. Um, To stand back for a moment, I think it's impossible to know, first of all, what is going to happen on the question of a customs union or the customs union. There is no doubt that because the UK is leaving the EU, it therefore has to leave the customs union arrangement as it currently is. The question that is before Parliament and before the government is whether we can somehow remain in a customs union relationship in which there is a common settling of the external tariff of goods coming into the EU from outside, therefore some restriction on the ability of the UK to forge its own trade deals with non-EU states, especially in goods, or whether Mrs May is going to press ahead with what she restated this week as her opinion, which is we are going to leave the customs union, a customs union, we're going to have our own trade deals with non-EU states, and we're going to try and find a couple of technical solutions which basically mean that our relationship with the EU is frictionless as possible. That's basically what's going on. But how this is going to end is unclear, and the stakes on it are, I think, very high indeed. Absolutely. Now, Henry Newman, obviously your think tank, um, Open you has explained why it's probably a good idea for us to leave the customs unit. It's about negotiating trade deals. Are you sort of concerned by what's been going on this week? Well, I think what's really concerning is that we still don't have complete clarity from the government. I mean, as James said, the Prime Minister has repeated over and over again that we are leaving the customs union. But the government, it still has two possible solutions on the table as to how we resolve our customs relationship with the EU. But I think if we step back a second, of course, the UK and the EU will need to have a high degree of customs cooperation. But 
There are no non-EU countries which are in the EU customs union, exactly as James said. And in terms of countries which have formed a customs union with the EU, the only real example is Turkey. And Keir Starmer, who is himself proposing a customs union for the UK and the EU after Brexit, has said that a Turkish arrangement wouldn't work. He wants an arrangement where the UK is in a customs union with the EU, but the EU very generously gives the UK a say over trade policy. And this week we heard Michel Barnier, the EU's Brexit lead, rule that out. So the point of having a customs union essentially is that it would tie Britain's hands to the EU in terms of its trade policy. Now, proponents say, you know what, that's actually worth paying that cost because it will help maintain a soft border island and it will protect just-in-time customs arrangements. What do you sort of say to those criticisms? I think there obviously are economic arguments for staying in or for arranging a new customs union. I accept that. I think we've got to be clear that leaving the EU will come with costs. And I think the government has been too slow to say that. Leaving the customs union will require... This is the cake and eat it thing that we Exactly. I think in in Mansion House, the Prime Minister began to say that Brexit will mean that things can't stay exactly the same. And she should have been much clearer about this for much longer. But the risk is that the UK essentially ties itself into the, the EU's broader political orbit where the EU essentially controls much of our trade policy. And it's not just about the ability to sign wide-ranging trade deals, but also to vary our overall tariff structure. And I think that in the long term, even if my opinion is shifting on this, even if Parliament forces the government's hand, which is still a question mark, I don't think it's sustainable in the long term for the UK to stay in a customs union with the EU. I think in 10 years' time, MPs will not be happy with, let's say, a future American administration tries to arrange a trade deal with the EU. Not having Britain's voice around that table, I just don't think it's sustainable. So, James, just to pick up something Henry said there, a lot of the uncertainty for this comes out the role of Parliament because it's very hard to say whether Parliament you know, would vote against the government on that, you know, whether enough votes there, because there are a number of Conservative rebels who feel quite differently to Theresa May on this and do feel that it is in Britain's best interest to stay in the customs union. The question is, would they, you know, put this to the test and therefore would it become a confidence issue in Theresa May's premiership? Well, you're right. Um, This is something which is obviously centre stage now at Westminster, And what do we know? Let's look at what we know at the moment. I mean, first of all, there was a debate on Thursday, which was really not very committal. It was a testing of the atmosphere on on the customs union issue. The Lords has passed an amendment, which is actually quite vague and quite non-prescriptive, but is coming to the Commons and I think will again be a test. But I'm not sure whether Tory rebels on this would particularly want to be seen to go against the government on something that had come out of the House of Unelected Peers. So I'm, I'm sure about that. There are two bills, a customs bill and a trade bill, which do have to be passed at some stage, although the government is somewhat unclear about when that is going to happen. Keeps pushing it back, Keeps pushing it back, and the fact is the government could make the argument that because the transition is more or less in play, we can put these bills much, much later back into the work. So that's unclear. But that, that for me, is where the hot point is. There will certainly, however, be a vote, a vote at some on point. the substantive a question of staying in or of the deal may comes back with. And there are amendments, as David Davis said, that can be put to that. So this is going to come as a vote. The question is, how do the MPs line up? Very roughly, I think on a rough calculation, there are about 17 Conservative MPs who have now said, one way or another, that they are against the government on the issue of the customs union. That is enough, really, to undermine the government's majority. Obviously, Labour MPs, some some pro-leave Labour MPs might go the other way. But she really has got a lot of difficulty on numbers. No question about that. 
if you were in the whip's office, you'd be very uncertain indeed whether you could win this vote. One of the things, Henry, I've been struck by is how little the government seems to be doing to manage this. You know, you mentioned they didn't manage the question of, you know, this economic consequence of leaving the EU. The strategy with the party seems to be just as sort of up in the air. I think part of the problem is that the government hasn't been very good at explaining what the point of leaving the customs union actually is. They haven't even made up their own mind. The cabinet committee this week was delayed again, where a decision was supposed to be made between the government's two preferred options. But we need to be hearing big figures going out and explaining the point of doing this. Otherwise, there's a a vacuum which is never being filled by the other side. And just to go back to the, the parliament point... This is all, of course, a long consequence of Theresa May's lost majority of the new strength of Parliament. But at the same time, it's actually quite hard for Parliament to drive the executive if the executive doesn't want to be doing this. So I think there's this vote in the Lords, which will probably now stand, which requires the government to essentially issue a statement as to why it's not leaving the customs union or not forming a new customs union. And there are these other bills around trade and cross-border taxation and customs, which will cause problems for the government. But I think that it's relatively hard to see the mechanism whereby Parliament is actually able to force that. I think, as James zoomed in on, the key point will be whatever exit deal is agreed with the EU, the government has committed to that having a substantial vote in Parliament, a meaningful say. When that comes back to Parliament, the danger is that the Commons will say, look, we're only going to pass this Brexit agreement you've made with the EU if you seek a new customs union. And the EU side has been very clear that they will reconsider uh, that question at any point right up to the exit date. So I think that is where the crunch will come for the government. Probably not on these bills, but much later on with the uh, meaningful vote on the withdrawal. I think of the things that you have said, Henry, the thing which I think is most relevant is the government needs to get out and make the case for getting out of a customs union. Mm. there is a case that can be made. There are some good arguments that if we were to stay in a customs union, our hands would be tied. But it needs to decide, and it will discuss this at the Cabinet Committee next week, which of these two mechanisms is the right one for having a frictionless border. It needs to decide on that, and then it needs to get out and make the argument. But unfortunately, I think once again, we see the timidity, I think, to some degree of Mrs May in pressing this argument. I mean, she has got a difficult hurdle to get over, but she needs to now grab it. Now, let's just talk about these two solutions here. Now, apologies for listening in advance. These are both quite complicated. But there is essentially, Henry, the customs partnership, which is the prime minister's apparently preferred strategy, but not really anyone else's from my understanding. And then there is what is described as the max facts um, situation. Can you just as briefly as possible outline these two solutions? Sure. So I think max fac, the second option, maximum facilitation, essentially involves the UK and the EU agreeing as much as possible to reduce customs checks. So that looks at examples like, for example, between Australia and New Zealand, where they've done a lot to agree customs cooperation and takes the best examples like that around the world and packages it up together. The alternative option, the hybrid model or the partnership model, is a clever idea that came out of, some people say the Treasury, others say Ollie Robbins, uh, the Prime Minister's Brexit Sherpa. And it essentially involves the UK providing EU's external customs checks. And so so the EU agrees to recognise UK customs checks. Now, the additional sort of complex part of this is that if the UK did sign other free trade deals, UK businesses would be able to apply to the customs and revenue for a tariff to be rebated if those goods were staying in the UK. So it's extraordinarily complex. And I just don't really see how it's a flyer. Now, are Brussels interested in either of these options, James? Because the uh, the hybrid model seems... as Henry said, complex, but also I don't see why Brussels would trust the UK on it. And then what's the feeling on the max fac option? 
Uh, the, the short answer is that Brussels is largely ruling those out in the negotiation at this stage. I mean, the hybrid model, the one in which we collect EU's tariffs, that, that has got the problem that not only is Brussels against it, but the hard Brexiters have described it, as Jacob Rees-Mogg says, as cretinous. So, at an Open Europe event this week, in fact. Right, indeed. In, indeed. <laughs> well done. Um, <laughs> so... It doesn't look to me like it's going to fly. You've got two enormous problems there. As far as the Max Fac is concerned, that requires an enormous amount of flexibility from Brussels and the way that it operates in terms of these technological trusted traded systems. And they're pretty firmly against that as well. Now, whether Brussels can be moved on that, I don't know. Remember as well that it doesn't solve the Irish border problem. That's the other problem with it. You still would have to have but in any case, significant alignment in terms of single market regulation and so on. So neither of them is a solution to the Ireland problem. Both of them are ruled out by uh, Brussels. And so it's a very difficult tightrope for Mrs May. Now, to get out of this stalemate that we're sort of in, and of course this might all come to a head in June, when there's the next European summit and Michel Barnier has said we need to get this Irish question sorted, otherwise the whole thing's not going to go anywhere. David Davis, the Brexit secretary, takes a different view and thinks it can all be wrapped up in October. Do you think it's a possibility, James, there could be an exit treaty that doesn't solve the Irish question? It really depends on how far the Irish and the EU want to push things at the June Council, whether they want to make that the decisive moment, I think. From everything one's seen so far, they will, I think, want to do that. I mean, the way the Brussels seems to see it at the moment is that this period that we're in now is for the wrapping up of the Article 50 process and the withdrawal treaty. And then the period between June and October is the period for working out the overarching uh, framework, the so-called end state, and then everything is wrapped up and agreed. So there would have to be a shift in the way that Brussels sees that timetable for the UK to defer the Ireland and customs union questions to further down the road. We just don't know really where we're going to get to. I think the, the difficulty here is also for the Prime Minister a political problem. It's not just with Parliament and Jacob Rees-Mogg, the head of the European Research Group, who described one of her options as cretinous, um, but it's also within the Cabinet, and the Cabinet is deeply split. And the government has therefore avoided making a decision on these two options. And more importantly, if she does jump one way or the other, she risks losing the support of quite a bit of the party. And we go back to that exact issue that's been really bedeviling the whole of the Prime Minister's Brexit strategy, that she is trapped and unable to, to make him her mind up either way for fear of offending one half of the party or the other, and for fear of essentially ending up with uh, whatever it is, 40-odd letters uh, in Graham Brady's box. So this is the question for Theresa May, that she's really been in her position because the Eurosceptics have said, we trust you to deliver Brexit, essentially, and the rest of the party have kept her there because they don't want someone who's going to be more hardline or might push them towards a no-deal Brexit. But I feel there is a real great sense within the Conservative Party that if she does wave on this, then they will lose faith in her. And I wrote this week, there's really two immovable objects in this. One is the European Commission, which, as you said, James, has been very steadfast in about sequencing and about what it wants from the deal than the other removable object are the Eurosceptic MPs. And essentially, if one of those sides doesn't blink over this, then the prospect of a no-deal Brexit is still there and potentially growing a little bit. I would agree with you. It's a ghastly subject, this. It's extraordinarily technical. It does make your head hurt. And it makes your head hurt. But the trouble is that we've got to the stage after a year and a half where the whole thing rather depends on it. 
And as you have said, I think there is an assumption out there in the wider world and financial markets that we're going to have an orderly end to this process and we will leave in March 2019 and the transition, which has been more or less agreed, will, will go on until the end of 2020. But I'm afraid um, there is a decent chance, 20%, maybe 25%, that actually this is going to end with complete political destabilization of the May government and the possibility of no deal. I don't know whether you agree with that. I think that whether or not the odds are exactly right, I think it's you're bang on with the possibilities there. Um, this there is a serious risk, and I think that the Commission needs to understand the political limitations that the Prime Minister is herself in, and that pushing her too far could risk what they what we heard this week uh, jokingly from one commissioner. What they're really worried about is a more Eurosceptic Prime Minister, and the danger is that if the Prime Minister jumps the wrong way on customs, goes for the, the partnership hybrid model, which is extremely unpopular with the right of the party Eurosceptics in the party they may try and depose her and the EU may rule it out anyway, which is really the worst of all worlds. So I think she has to play this very, very, very carefully over the next few weeks. Next Thursday, Britain goes to the polls once again. Local election fever is hitting the country and it's shaping up to be a good night for the Labour Party. They're expected to make gains in metropolitan areas, London in particular. But what defines a good night for Mr Corbyn? Just how well is it going to do in London and how much of a shellacking are the Conservatives in for? So Jim Picard, at this point in the cycle, the government's been in power for a year. It's a really good opportunity for voters to give the Tories a bit of a kicking, whether it's over the Windrush scandal, whether it's over Brexit or just the general sort of lack of leadership. So we'd expect Labour to generally across the country do quite well next Thursday. Exactly. And this is the context we should all bear in mind when the results start flooding in on Thursday and Friday. The Tories are still really strong in local government. Okay, ignore London for a moment, look across the whole of England, they still have far more councillors than Labour. And at this point in the electoral cycle, it should be the other way around. If you look at what normally happens when a party's been in power in Westminster for eight years, they shed loads of councillors every summer, the electorate comes out and gives them a kicking. And I think one reason that hasn't necessarily happened is that the Lib Dem uh, vote in the shires has gone down massively in local elections and a lot of those have gone to the Tories more than you might have thought. But it doesn't bode particularly well for Corbyn that he is sort of still behind there and they haven't really made gains at all in the last couple of years. But then we look at London and we see quite high expectations for the Labour Party in several key seats. So this is really the key thing it's going to be looked at because I always think local elections are interesting as a sort of as a template to check on the momentum of each party not as actually meaning anything because it's it's quite hard to project them into a national vote because of a different electorate different you know motivations for voting but the clear thing is Mr Corbyn you know was on a roll following what happened in last year's snap election. We did a lot better than expected. But as you were saying, Jim, all those gains look as if they're going to be in the metropolitan areas, particularly in London. This is where you've been out on the trail this week. Exactly. And, and just to go macro again, it's very easy to forget that we had the local elections last year, a few weeks before the general election, where Labour pretty much got trounced and the Tories did really well. Total opposite and, almost. And it, 
it was part of the expectation management, which in the end really kind of helped Corbyn in the general election. Uh, I had lunch yesterday with a member of the Corbyn team who he was recalling how in 2016 there were the forecasts from Rannings and Thrasher, the noted sophologists who were predicting 300 losses for Labour. And he thought Labour was going to do fine and come out pretty much net even. And he was pleased that his prediction had come right. But again, we go back to the point that Labour in 2016 should have been gaining hundreds of seats off the Tories. It should never have been seen the other way around. So I was in Barnet on Monday. We don't do predictions anymore, do we? Do either of you still do predictions? I think we can still do a prediction. Gut, gut instincts are always good to go for. Bold. God, are you sure? Bold, Jim. <laughs> We're all so burnt by recent years. Um, I'm not going to make my personal predictions, but in the Labour Party, they are looking pretty optimistic for Barnet and for Wandsworth. And it's not inconceivable that they could take Westminster. And incredibly, Kensington is a long shot, but possible. So these are three London councils, plus Kensington, Chelsea, four, um, which are quite solidly blue. Westminster has been blue since it was found in 1964. Barnet, similar story again. And Wandsworth is very much this Thatcherite bastion. It was Margaret Thatcher's favourite council that loved to outsource um, services and have lots of low taxes. Things that I've heard, Laura, suggest that the Conservatives, they began this campaign thinking it was going to be a dire night. They were saying to their MPs, look, we'll work hard We'll put all our effort in, but realistically, it's going to be losses. And then on the momentum side, as Jim was saying, they were really enthusiastic about taking at least those three, which is Barnet, Westminster and Wandsworth. The momentum is still there, but it seems to have been shaky in the last couple of days, not least to a poll that came out on Thursday. Yeah, the poll that came out yesterday said that Labour would probably get Barnet, but that actually Wandsworth and Westminster could stay blue. And everyone, you know, in the weeks that have run up to this moment thought, oh, no, those two might go to Labour. So actually, if the Tories manage to hold on to them, it will be a much better night than we predicted and not the disaster that a lot of Tory MPs are expecting. And, you know, just to sort of put some context into this, there are a lot of Tory MPs, pro-European Tory MPs, who have been talking over recent weeks about how actually... It would be quite good for them and their customs union arguments if the Tories did badly in the local elections. Because if people are voting Labour and Lib Dem, they're sending a message to the government. These MPs argue that they are not happy with the current direction of travel when it comes to Brexit. So perversely, there are some Tory MPs who are sitting actually hoping their own party does quite badly in these local elections. I think there's also been, you know, it all plays into Mrs May's leadership as well, that if it was a really bad night, it would create those fears again about where the party is going. But um, on those three councils, Barnet seems quite likely to go red. We don't want to make predictions, Jim, but it only really, there's only two gains Labour need to make to take Barnet. But on the other hand, Barnet is one of the few areas of the country where the Jewish population can actually swing elections. It's very concentrated in that neck of the woods. And obviously the recent problems they've had with anti-Semitism might play into that. I can be really geeky about Barnet now that I've spent a day there. I'm an instant expert. Having not really known Barnet at all uh, in previous years. Um, it, it's quite complicated to see. It's, it's vast. It's got the second largest population of any London borough. And it's the sort of fifth biggest geographically and there are as Seb says two wards which four years ago they came within 60 uh, votes and 80 votes respectfully but those have, have a very high concentration of Jewish voters they're both in Enfield and I think Labour is not that optimistic of taking 
them. But where they are quite optimistic is in the north of the borough, where it's much more kind of leafy and you're getting close to the M25 and you're in somewhere called Chipping Barnet and New Barnet. And what I'm told is happening there, it's, it's much more sort of wider demographic issue where people, uh, with young families particularly, they've moved out of central London to the outskirts, bought nice houses, but they've taken with them left-wing, liberal, pro-immigration, anti-Tory young attitudes. And it's more likely to be there that you see a movement towards Labour. And when you take the Jewish issue as well, there are definite concerns in the Jewish community about Jeremy Corbyn's Labour. We know that. But in the borough of Barnet, it's 15% Jewish. It's the largest proportion of Jews in any municipality in the whole of Europe. But let's say of those 15 percentage points, maybe 10 might already vote Tory. And of the other five, some of them will stick with Labour just because they believe in progressive policy, even if they don't like the current leadership. It may not be as decisive as we think. And when I talked to Labour campaigners on Monday, they said a lot of the issues are much more bread and butter. They're about developments with no social housing. They're about the easy council model where they've outsourced stuff to Capita. And it's about potholes and bin collections. Just to give a story from Westminster, I went out there last Saturday with Momentum, who are very enthusiastic about taking that from the Conservatives. It's a much bigger task because the Conservatives have 47 councillors compared to the 15 Labour currently have there. Now, again, Westminster is a very split council. There's a lot of areas, particularly towards the west and the north, which are poorer, but then there's other areas which are much more kind of middle class and went went out with momentum and the Guardian columnist Owen Jones was there leading the campaign. They were very much focusing on the local authority housing, which is the traditional Labour strongholds and their message again, Jim, Mm -hmm. was about um, affordable housing, about council services, and also this general mood of sort of kicking it to the Tories in a way it's a good opportunity to do that my gut would be quite surprised if they did take Westminster it would have to be a really big swing to Labour because the Tories are quite entrenched there and can I interrupt for a second just to say you're starting to use momentum and Labour almost as the same words as if they're now the same thing it's almost like he's a leader in uh... I'm going to be play devil's advocate and and just remind you that momentum only has 30,000 paying members and the Labour Party now has 600,000 members so 95% of Labour members are still not in momentum and they're out there banging on doors and stuffing envelopes and all the rest of it and what's really interesting people talk about momentum as if it's taken over the Labour Party and it's taken over local government because we keep reading about Haringey where they are now really strong and they got rid of Claire Cooper, who was the moderate leader. What was really interesting in Barnet is that of the 30 councillors they have, only two of them backed Jeremy Corbyn against Owen Smith and 28 were Smith backers. And it's very much not a momentum stronghold at all. And part of that is just that the selections for the council elections happened nearly two years ago. But I thought it was quite a good example of how momentum's inverted commas takeover is is not a sort of instant process and you look at Manchester only 8 out of 90 Labour candidates there are kind of momentum people Now Laura let's look at a different political party you went out with the Liberal Democrats down in Kingston which were out in the London suburbs and this used to be somewhere where the Lib Dems did well they'd sort of lost the Tories in 2015 but then took it back again in 2017 what did you find when you were out there? So I was with Ed Davey the former Energy Secretary Sir Ed Davey Sir Ed Davey the former energy secretary during the coalition years who was a man on a mission and we basically went round targeting the homes of EU nationals and the Lib Dem message to them is A, 
did you know that you can vote in these local elections because EU nationals can't vote in the big ones? Come and vote. And did you know that we are the only party that are saying we want to stop Brexit? And actually, a lot of them, A, didn't know and went, oh, okay, maybe I will vote. And actually, the idea of sending a message to Theresa May that they're not happy with the direction of travel was one that was relatively appealing. And, you know, the Lib Dems didn't do well in the snap election, despite having this message. They did gain a couple of seats. They gained a couple, but they didn't, you know, their argument was, look at all these people out there. The, the percentages that didn't vote for Brexit will have their support and they really didn't. But they're arguing now that the situation is completely different because we know exactly what the government's plans are. Well, we think we know on the customs union, that's what Theresa May is saying, we're not going to stay in. And so people do now know what they're going to get with Brexit and there's more momentum there. And that the EU nationals who couldn't vote last time, for them, this is the first vote they have since Brexit. Breakfast? Brexit. And we've had a few flicks, haven't we, of Labour pretending to be the party that can stop Brexit. Exactly. Well, And actually, this argument really works because a lot of these people would have voted Labour in the past are going, well, no, they're going along with Brexit. They've so so we're having it. voted yeah. Labour in the past, they now are going to go for the Liberal Democrats because they feel like the Lib Dems are the party for the Europeans. And that message was one that Ed Davey was really putting out there and it was well received. But generally, the Lib Dems are not doing very well. Their polling numbers are in the doldrums. They don't really have any impact and their Brexit message just isn't taking hold in a way because I think most of the country generally seems to have accepted, you know, look, this thing's happening. Let's just get on with it now. And, you know, I've seen some analysis done for the Conservatives which suggest they might actually gain some councils from the Liberal Democrats because they're not in a good position. Do you think there's any chance of that? No, but I, I mean, that's why they're targeting EU nationals so specifically. You know, they've put adverts out on Facebook in 21 languages. They've got Liberal MEPs speaking in the language of these individual EU nationals telling them to vote and why. So that is the reason they know that they're not making traction with the general population at large. But there are a significant number of EU nationals living in this country, particularly in London. And Sadiq Khan, a few months ago, said, right, Londoners, let's use this vote to punish Theresa May over Brexit. But it doesn't really work on the doorstep because of Labour's position on Brexit. But it could be worse, though, couldn't it? They could be in the, the same situation as UKIP, who I don't have the numbers to hand, but they're fielding very few candidates mm. compared to four years ago, where they were kind of at their peak I think, wasn't that, didn't that coincide with the European elections and they, they got a record tally? And now I think the expectation is they're going to be virtually wiped out. And a lot of these seats, and our colleague Henry Mance went through the last 150 Nigel Farage tweets and realised that even Farage hadn't mentioned UKIP once in any of them. So the final thing, Jim, is that local elections are always about the narrative that emerges from them. So based on everything that we've said and seen in London, it's going to be a good night for Labour. Just how good? We'll wait and see. But the Conservatives, they want to really say, look, OK, London's never going to be great. But if they hold up quite well in the rest of the country, you can see those spokesmen emerging on Friday morning while saying, you know, actually... We've not done as badly as we expected, which in a way shows how low expectations are that you can make losses and they'll spin it as a gain. But going back to your point you made earlier about Labour and momentum, I think mm. Labour have been much more savvy about their expectations about these, whereas momentum have been talking about all these massive gains they're going to make. So there could be an interesting difference between those two come next Friday. Yeah, and I think the other point as well is that this reinforces what we already known as becoming more and more clear with every passing year, which is that London, socially, demographically 
attitudinally is totally different to most of the rest of the country. And when you look back at the power balance back in the 60s and 70s, it didn't used to be like this. It wasn't a completely overwhelming Labour citadel. But you look at the general election result last year and London was where Labour really strengthened its control. And yet, you know, the tide going out against Labour in so many other places. And I think that's what the Tories will probably point to next Friday that don't think that changes in Wandsworth and Westminster are going to be played out everywhere. And I think, Laura, the th- the question for the Conservatives is, is London still going to be an outlier or is this the direction the rest of the country is going in? Because if it's the latter, then they're going to have to radically rethink how they fight these elections and partly it's messages, partly it's candidate, but it's also the leader. Yeah, but I think there is also just an acceptance that London is going to be different and that, yes, Labour might make the biggest gains the Labour Party have ever made in 40 years in the capital, but actually they're probably relying on a lot of former Lib Dem UKIP voters going for the Tories outside London. And it's a sort of perverse situation where if they're not completely annihilated, it's a victory. Well, don't forget to vote next Thursday that if you're listening to this, you're probably on interest in going to the polls. So we'll be back next week for an analysis of the local elections and the results and see if any of those predictions had any merit to them. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much to James, Jim, Laura and Henry for joining us. We'll be back next Saturday for another instalment. FT Politics was presented by Sebastian Payne and produced by Joshua Oliver. Until next time, thanks for listening. The inexorable rise of China, the changing nature of work, the future of liberal capitalism, the power of Silicon Valley, the world of artificial intelligence. Join Gideon Rachman, Sarah O'Connor, Martin Wolf, Rana Faruha and John Thornhill as they explore some of the most significant questions of our age in a new podcast, The FT Big Picture. To listen and subscribe, visit ft.com podcasts. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.